Open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 16 this morning. Acts chapter 16 is where we're going to be. We're going to get to go through one of my very favorite stories in Scripture today. But before we do, I want you to do something for me this morning. I want you to think of the most difficult circumstance in your life. Maybe a broken relationship or a difficult person, some kind of problem that you're facing. Whatever it is, I want you to think of the most difficult circumstance in your life and bring it to the forefront of your mind. Keep it there. We're going to come back to it in a little bit, okay? But for now, let's go to Philippi. Because Luke here, the author of this text, is on a journey with Paul and Silas. They're on this missionary journey, and they come to a city called Philippi. And here's what happens. Acts chapter 16, verses 12 through 15. They're in Philippi. It says, On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a worshiper, or excuse me, was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So Luke and Paul and Silas are on this journey. They arrive in the city of Philippi, and they meet this lady named Lydia. Lydia is a high-end dealer of purple cloth. Purple was the color of royalty back then. And so Lydia is a wealthy, stylish businesswoman. She's kind of like the Joanna Gaines of her day, right? Shiplap extraordinaire. That's Lydia. And Lydia hears Paul preach the good news of Jesus. God opens her heart. She believes. And when God opens Lydia's heart, Lydia opens her home. That's what followers of Jesus do. When God opens our heart, we open our home. But then look what happens here. Verses 16 through 18, we meet another woman. Luke says, when we were on going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. So here we have this slave girl come onto the scene, and this girl is in double bondage. Not only is she in bondage to her slave masters, but she's also in bondage to an evil spirit. And this spirit gives her the ability to predict the future, which also happens to bring in a nice little income for her owners. And so for weeks, this girl is tagging along behind Paul as his crew, and they're going around trying to do ministry, but this girl just keeps tailing them, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Which is true, but she's definitely not very tactful about it. She's an interruption. She's a distraction. And Paul definitely doesn't want the good news of Jesus to be associated with the occult. That's not exactly good PR. So, the text says, Paul was greatly annoyed. Now, I don't know what you do when you're greatly annoyed. I know what I do when I'm greatly annoyed, and it's definitely not what Paul does here. Because Paul, in his annoyance, heals this girl. 
He casts out the evil spirit. She now can't predict the future, and the evil spirit leaves, which also means the owner's income leaves. They're not too happy about that. Verses 19 through 24. It says, When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. The jailer was commanded to guard them carefully, and when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So Paul and Silas are in big trouble here. Not only are the owners mad at them because the owners have lost their income, but the crowds are mad at them too because the crowds have now lost their ability to predict their own futures. So everybody's mad at Paul and Silas. And they drag Paul and Silas up before the city officials on trumped-up charges, and the city officials decide to have Paul and Silas beaten with rods. Soldiers would take these wooden rods, about as thick as a billy club, long as a broom handle, and beat them until their backs were, were swollen and bloody. And then, battered and bruised, Paul and Silas were then drugged to prison, not just any cell, but to the inner cell, the most secure cell, the worst cell. No windows, no toilets, no food, no water. And then Paul and Silas were thrown face first onto the urine-soaked, rat-infested dirt. And as if it couldn't get any worse, just to make sure Paul and Silas didn't try anything, the jailer would then take their legs and spread them as far apart as he possibly could and then clamp them, boom, in the stocks just like that so they couldn't move. The pain would have been excruciating. Obviously, you can't sleep like that. It's impossible to sleep. But it wasn't impossible to pray. And so they prayed. And as Paul and Silas are praying, one of them starts to hum. I'll fly away like a bird from prison bars is flown. I'll fly away. And they turned that jail cell into a concert hall. Verse 25 says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Well, duh. <laughs> I bet they were listening. I mean, prisons were loud places. They'd heard it all. They'd heard a beating and cursing and screaming and yelling and moaning and crying. They thought they'd heard everything, but none of them had ever heard anything like this. Worship in a prison? Let's pause right there. Remember how I asked you at the beginning of the sermon to bring the most difficult circumstance in your life to mind? Bring it back. Bring it back to the front of your mind right now. I don't know what it is for you, but in one of our preaching classes in college, they told us to preach to broken hearts because if you do, you'll never lack an audience. There's one in every pew. And it's true. In every chest in this room, there's a beating heart, a beating heart full of broken dreams regrets, loneliness, adversity, weariness, fear, weakness. 
we all have scars. We all have hurts. And the church is supposed to be a place for broken people. When somebody comes up to you on a Sunday morning and says, Hi, how are you? We generally say, I'm fine, how are you? And that's okay. But the fact of the matter is that a lot of us in here today aren't fine. We're hurting. And so I'm going to ask you this morning to have the courage to expose a little bit of your pain. If you'd be willing, I'd like for you to take a look around the room and see some of the hardships that the people in here today are facing. So, if in the last three years you have experienced the grief of death in your family or with a close friend, will you raise your hand? If in the last three years you've experienced the pain of divorce in your family or a close friend, will you raise your hand? If in the last three years you or someone you love has battled cancer, will you raise your hand? If in the last three years you or someone you love has fought with addiction, will you raise your hand? If in the last three years you or someone close to you has dealt with mental illness, will you raise your hand? If in the last three years you have gone through the difficult phase of caring for aging parents or aging grandparents, will you raise your hand? If in the last three years you have faced financial stress, will you raise your hand? If in the last three years you have felt the pain of someone you love being far from God, will you raise your hand? Thank you for your courage. Thank you for your honesty. Broken hearts. There's one in every pew. Every person in this room right now is fighting a hard battle. So the question is, what do we do at midnight in prison? We can retreat. We can shut down. We could despair. We could lose hope. We could become bitter or cynical. Or we could worship. I think that's what this text would want to tell us today. Let your weakness lead to worship. Let your weakness lead to worship. You know the Bible tells us, you might recognize this verse. It says, rejoice in the Lord occasionally. Rejoice in the Lord when your life is going well and you feel like it. <laughs> Rejoice in the Lord when things are going good for you and it's easy. No, that's not what it says, is it? It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your weakness lead to worship. Because that's what Jesus did. Mark chapter 14, verse 26, after Jesus and his disciples had eaten the Last Supper, it says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. When he'd sung a hymn. You see, it's Passover time, and there are these certain psalms that the Jews would sing specifically at Passover. Psalms 116, 117, and 118. And so as Jesus is preparing to go out to the Mount of Olives, 
And when he gets there, he's going to pray so hard that he sweats drops of blood. And then Jesus is going to be arrested and tried illegally and tortured and executed, bearing the sins of the world. And as Jesus is preparing for that rejection, that misery that he knows is coming, the greatest pain ever experienced by anyone, what does he do? He sings. He worships. And do you know what he likely sang? Do you know what Psalm 118 says? This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. On the way to Gethsemane, on the way to Golgotha, Jesus worshiped. Let your weakness lead to worship. Many years ago, uh, Horatio G. Spafford was a wealthy man, but in a tragic turn of events, he and his family lost nearly everything they owned in a fire. And so Horatio G. Spafford made plans to move his family from Chicago to France for a fresh start. Mr. Spafford, he planned the trip meticulously, making sure that his wife and his daughters would sail over the ocean on a large ship, a safe ship. He, he made sure that they would be accompanied by fellow Christians with whom they could fellowship. And then Mr. Spafford was planning on traveling over a few weeks later when he got his affairs in order. However, despite Horatio G. Spafford's careful preparation, disaster struck when the ship that was carrying his wife and four daughters was accidentally rammed by another ship and sank to the bottom of the sea. Horatio G. Spafford's wife survived, but his four daughters were killed. Nine days later, when his wife finally arrived in Wales, she managed to telegraph her husband and inform him of the awful news. Immediately, Horatio G. Spafford uh, left to go meet with his wife, and as his ship sailed across the Atlantic, the captain came to him, and he told him as they passed the spot where his daughters had died. And it was there, at that place, in the darkest night of Horatio Spafford's life, the place of his greatest adversity, where he let his weakness lead to worship. As they passed the spot where his daughters drowned. Horatio G. Spafford took out his pen and his paper, and he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say it is well it is well with my soul and so today we follow the lead of paul and silas and the many who have gone before us so take your weakness take your adversity Take the most difficult circumstance in your life and in the midnight of your struggle, let your weakness lead to worship. So what would you say to someone else who's in a season of adversity? Hold on just a little bit longer.
grew up in a loving home um, with a firm foundation in faith. It was encouraged, it was accepted. Um, parents were very loving. I went to college to uh, pursue mechanical and electrical engineering. I wanted to double major, but uh, after two years I failed out of uh, college and pursued a community college and within one semester I failed out of there as well. At the time I was pursuing parties, I was pursuing socializing, drinking and just getting high. I wanted to do that more than I wanted to study. I was a drug addict and an alcoholic. I just felt more and more empty. And so to kind of escape that, I would pursue the drugs and just numb myself. By the end of 2009, I had arrest records in multiple states, uh, twice for driving under the influence, um, probation, suspended license. I was working week to week just to make a paycheck so I could go get drunk at the bar or go find some pills to take, uh, just to get numb again. Just wanted to get high, just wanted to get drunk, wanted to disappear. Angela, yeah, we met in 2011. God definitely had a purpose bringing us together. Even with the, the, the mask that I was wearing, the, the facade that I put up, um, she was able to see through it and see some little glimmer of hope within me, a reason to stick with me. Later that year after we met, she literally uh, witnessed my final arrest. Uh, I got pulled over for a seatbelt violation, um, and then the officer ran my name and came back and said, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to arrest you. You are driving on a suspended license as a habitual traffic violator. But I spent uh, about eight hours in that jail cell. Uh, I had plenty of time to kind of reflect and kind of figure out, you know, why, how did I get to this point? A lot of guilt, a lot of shame. Everything was now out and exposed. I couldn't hide behind a mask anymore. I couldn't hide behind this, this image that I had put up. 2012 was a year that will forever be engraved in my memory. July 30th, we had our wedding. Each said I do, had a nice, beautiful little ceremony. After my conviction in March, uh, my license had been suspended. And so if it wasn't raining out, I was riding my bicycle. It quickly, that riding of the bicycle wasn't just a mode of transportation. It switched from that mode of transportation to, to a passion, something that I really loved doing. That, that riding, that, that, that cycling was a freedom for me. And just that was my time to talk to God and, and really kind of lay out the turmoil that I was having inside. I was just kind of throwing up prayers and kind of hoping that maybe I'd get some answers. On October 15th, 2012, the morning started out just like any other morning. Took off riding into work and was hit head on by a truck. Sustained injuries to my left shoulder and left leg, um, and it resulted in the amputation of my left foot. Over the next 18 months, I would endure 15 surgeries overall. During that time, I was very angry. Um, I was angry at myself. Uh, I was angry at those around me. Uh, ultimately, I was angry at God. I didn't. I couldn't understand why. Why I was in this mess. A lot of that time, um, I was also dealing with depression. Literally, I would sit in front of the bottle and think, "Is today going to be the day? Am I just going to end it today?" I thought of suicide. Hated the way life was, and I couldn't find an answer as to why. I remember I was sitting on my kitchen table, staring at my Bible, staring at a cup of coffee. I was just feeling really depressed, really sorry for myself. 
And I just cried out and I said, why, why God, why are we doing this? What do you have for me? Why, why did you save me? And it was just like something clicked. I was like, I'm here for a reason. God saved me for a reason. I've pursued my life. I pursued my desires for so long. I said, God, you have control. I can't do this on my own anymore. God opened my eyes to who he really was. The love that he had for me when, when I was in my darkest, dirtiest hours, my mess that I was in, he still loved me. To look back, uh, the accident, October 15th, that was probably the best day of my life. And God allowed that to happen for a reason. And I'm still reaping the benefits. No matter what aspect, where you're at in life, there's still hope on the other side. New purpose. New life. So when we left off, Paul and Silas were having karaoke night in jail, which begs the question, how could they do that? How did they do it? How did Paul and Silas sing in prison? Well, I, I think Paul and Silas knew a secret. Let's, let's take a look back at Acts chapter 16 here, because here they are. They're singing their hearts out. It's the original jailhouse rock, when all of a sudden, God decides to join in and play percussion. Look what happens. Verses 26 through 34 says this. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God, he and his whole household. So Paul and Silas are singing, and God brings an earthquake, shakes the prison, opens the cell doors, even breaks the prisoners' chains. The jailer sees this. He knows he's going to face the death penalty because all these prisoners have escaped. So he draws his sword, points it at his gut, and is just about ready to take the fall. He takes a breath when all of a sudden, stop, don't hurt yourself. We're all here. And the jailer's got to be thinking about Paul and Silas. What kind of men are these? I mean, I saw them out there in the marketplace. They teach radical things about this God who tells them to love their enemies. And they, they, they cast out spirits. And these men, they, they, they're beaten within an inch of their life and they sing songs. Their God shakes the earth to set them free. And then they stay in jail and save the life of the man who abused them? What kind of men are these? What kind of God is this? And he asks, what must I do to be saved? 
Paul and Silas tell them about Jesus. He believes. He takes them into his home. He washes their bloody wounds. And then in turn, Paul and Silas baptize him. Now he is the one washed in blood, the blood of Jesus. You see, when we let our weakness lead to worship, God lets our worship lead to witness. That's the second part of this text here. Let your worship lead to witness. Because when people see you worshiping in prison, they'll take notice. They'll wonder what you have. And they'll want some of it. But there's more. The text isn't done here. Verses 35 through 40. It says, When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, uh, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we're Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? Nope. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them, and then they left. You see, Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. That was like a get-out-of-jail-free card because it was illegal to beat or imprison a Roman citizen without a fair trial. This was a huge deal, being a Roman citizen and accidentally beating and imprisoning a Roman citizen without due process. So this begs the question, why didn't Paul just say so to begin with? Why didn't he pull out his little ID and say, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, you can't beat me, you can't throw me into jail? Why didn't he do that at the beginning of this process and avoid all the hardship? Don't you see what Paul's doing? He is willingly suffering for the good of the church. He lets these officials abuse him and imprison him unfairly, and then, and only then, does he tell them that he is a Roman citizen. Now, of course, when they hear that, they're petrified because they were imprisoned and beat a Roman citizen. They could lose their jobs. They could be imprisoned themselves, so they want to do whatever it takes to appease Paul now. So what does Paul do? He basically says, okay, yeah, fine, yeah, I'll leave the city, fine, I won't press charges as long as you leave my friends alone. Paul has just purchased security for this fledgling little Philippian church. He willingly suffers so that they don't have to. Sounds like Jesus, huh? You see, God can use your suffering to strengthen his people. He can let your worship lead to witness. Paul, Paul was a jailbird. He was in and out of prison the whole rest of his life. And one time, a while later, Paul's in prison. And while he's in prison, he writes a letter back to this church in Philippi, back to the friends that he meets in this story. And maybe when they got the letter, who knows, maybe the jailer is the one who stood up and read the letter out loud to the congregation that was meeting in Lydia's house. Maybe that slave girl was there to hear it when the letter called Philippians was read for the first time. This letter about perseverance, about joy in difficult places. Paul writes to his friends here in Philippi in Philippians chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. He says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. 
since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Did you catch that? That this, this suffering, these hard things that we're going through, it's actually a gift. It's been granted to us. Now what in the world kind of gift is that? And, and why does Philippians, this book written by a man who is in, in prison, a man who is suffering, written to people who are suffering, why does this book, why is this book of all books the most joyful book in the New Testament? Why does Philippians mention joy over and over and over again? Why is joy the theme of Philippians? We come back to our question, how in the world could Paul and Silas sing in prison? I think he gives us a clue here in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. See, just because Paul was in prison doesn't mean he quit preaching. It just meant he had a captive audience and they couldn't leave. <laughs> he starts converting even the guards. And, you know, I, th I think that started way back here in Philippi. I, I think Paul and Silas sang in prison because they knew that God could turn their weakness, their, their worship, into their witness. They knew that God could turn that adversity into an opportunity. They knew God could turn that prison into a pulpit. They knew God could turn their misery into their ministry. We're all going through stuff in this room. There's a broken heart in every chest right now. So with the adversity that you're going through, take that most difficult circumstance in your life, bring it back to your mind, and let's pray this prayer together. Let's read out loud the words of the screen. Father, I believe this adversity is an opportunity. So let my weakness be your witness. Whatever you're facing today, I, I hope you have your heart on heaven. I hope you keep fixing your mind on eternity because someday your hurts will be removed. They will. But for now, here on earth, even if your hurts aren't removed, they can be redeemed. Wynton Marsalis uh, was the jazz director at the Lincoln Center for Performing Arts in New York City. He's won a Pulitzer Prize. He's written a whole bunch of books. He plays a seriously mean trumpet. And back in August of 2001, on a Tuesday evening, Wynton Marsalis was playing at a little place in Greenwich Village, and he was playing a song called, I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You. He's playing on the trumpet without any accompaniment. It's just him. And as he neared the end of his song, a beautiful song, all of a sudden, the sound of a cell phone ringtone from somebody in the audience sliced through the air and completely marred the drama of the moment. A jazz critic in the audience scrawled on his notepad in all caps, MAGIC RUINED. People began to chatter. But then, at that moment, Wynton Marcellus improvised. He played the notes of the cell phone ringtone back, first slow, and then fast, and then in different keys. And then, when all ears were back on him, he seamlessly transitioned that silly little cell phone ringtone back into the ballad, and he finished the song. <laughs> <laughs> 
in the words of that jazz critic, the standing ovation was tremendous. You see, God can take the failure and the weakness and the adversity, the things that threaten to ruin us, and he can weave it seamlessly into the song of our lives until it's actually just part of the music. God is, he's like an artist that takes this ugly paint splotch thrown onto the canvas of our lives and he paints it perfectly right into the picture. He uses our weakness as part of our witness. He takes our adversity and he gives us opportunity. We watched Uriah's testimony video a few minutes ago, and I've loved getting to know Uriah over the last several weeks. He's a member of our church. He attends the 930 service over in the Fellowship Center. And Uriah has taken what would be the worst day of his life, getting hit by a car in an 80-mile-an-hour collision, having his leg ripped off. He's taken that adversity, and he's turned it into an opportunity. Uriah has become passionate about uh, athletics now, and he is, he's training in, in the triathlon. He's hoping to be a part of Team USA in the 2020 Paralympics in Tokyo. I'm going to be watching the Paralympics next year. I don't know about you. And not only that, but he's taken that adversity, his, his hardship that he's been through, and he's passionate now about working in the hospital systems to help people who are going through amputations. And he walks with the patients through the process to show them that there is hope for life on the other side. God has taken his adversity and made it his opportunity. He's taken his weakness and made it his witness. We lost Paul Johnson this last week. I saw Paul do that time and time again. And Mary, your weakness has turned to worship, and your worship here today is your witness. Thank you. Well done. I've seen so many of you do this. We make a lot of hospital visits uh, at the church, and we have great hospital systems here. I'm so thankful for the hospitals. But hospitals can be dark places, you know. Nobody really wants to be in the hospital. It would be easy to be discouraged. It would be easy to despair. And yet so many of you, when we've gone to visit you in the hospital, we go to encourage you, and yet I'm the one who leaves encouraged. I leave your hospital room, and I'm not quite sure who the minister was. <laughs> because you're turning your adversity into opportunity. You're turning your weakness into worship, into witness. And for some of you right now, it feels like it's midnight in a dark jail cell that you didn't deserve, that you didn't see coming, that you can't find your way out of. So let your weakness lead to worship. Let your worship lead to witness. Because God can use this. He's been doing it all throughout the Bible. Abraham had to leave his home. Moses had to run from the palace to the desert. Joseph was thrown in prison for a crime he didn't commit. David faced Goliath. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fire. Daniel was thrown to the lions. Elijah went toe-to-toe -to -toe with an evil queen and her wicked prophets. Nehemiah came back from captivity only to find his homeland overrun with wicked scoundrels. Jonah was eaten by a fish and then sent to the most evil city on the planet. Esther was threatened. Jeremiah was rejected. John the Baptist was in prison. Paul had health problems and legal issues. The church was persecuted. Jesus was crucified. But we follow a God who brings life out of dead situations. We follow a God of resurrection. So whatever you're going through today, whatever your hardship is, don't forget to worship, even when it's hard. Because when you face your adversity in hope, in joy, in faith, in worship, God takes your weakness and he makes it your witness. And make no mistake, the world is watching they are listening. 
So let them hear you sing. We're coming now to a time of communion, a time of worship, where we are going to worship the one, this Jesus, who took his greatest adversity, this cross, and he made it an opportunity to purchase our salvation. Let's sing together.